Welcome to the UDL Forward podcast, where we explore the latest and most innovative practices in universal design for learning. I'm your host, Melissa Emler. And I'm Mia Schmiel, joining Melissa on this exciting journey as your co-host. As passionate advocates of UDL, we're committed to bringing you the most real-life conversations about the work of UDL implementation. In today's episode, we'll dive deep into the fascinating world of design, placing a special emphasis on the importance of empathy, learner variability, and reducing cognitive load. We'll discuss how these key elements contribute to a more inclusive and effective learning environment for all. Furthermore, we'll dive into the power of multiple means of representation and expression, examining how these approaches empower learners to better understand, interpret, and communicate their ideas. So without further ado, let's get started on this exciting journey to enhance our understanding of empathetic design and the UDL principles that shape the future of education. Yes, let's move UDL forward. All right, Mia, here we are again, and I'm so excited to talk about design. This is where I feel that creative juice and energy come into the work of UDL. This is where I think teachers having the opportunity to put in that art and to go along with the science of instruction. So design is probably my favorite part of the work. And I also I love the fact that you're pulling out that word design, right? We've had this kind of through line of our thinking of all changes linguistic, and we're not talking about planning for learning, right? We're not talking about lesson planning. We are talking about designing learning. And that is just a really important like nuance to, to think about that we're really being intentional about the kind of design that we have the opportunity to do. And that really is where, you know, teachers have the ability to use their creativity. And where as educators, like that's where like some of us just that continues to move us forward. Right. And that's where we feel empowered when we can really take charge of designing the learning experiences for the students that we have. So I love the word design, not plan. It's design. Right. So let's talk a little bit. Let's dig into that nuance in our vocabulary for a second. So we often say that we are working to design learning experiences. And typically when you're in teacher preparation programs or workshops for, you know, veteran teachers, we're often reminded that lesson planning is really important. So it's important to understand the nuance. So the way I distinguish the nuance between designing learning experiences and lesson planning is to consider who the end user of each of those things is. So in learning experience design, the end user of the design is the learner. It is the student. So when you're thinking about designing the experience, you have to be thinking through the lens of the learner. What will they experience? And how many options are you thinking about still tied to the goal that will change the experience for each learner in the classroom? And as you think about adding in more options for the learners, you have to recognize that there's still a lot of planning yet to be done on behalf of the teacher. So the end user of the plan is the teacher. So delve into that a little bit with me, Mia. What does that make you think of? 
when working with with teachers, and again, like I have the opportunity to work with several different schools in in my region, that shift when we come together and we have a chance to look at like what's coming up next, like how are we going to plan for a coaching cycle? When we talk about designing for learning, it removes the well, I've always done this assignment. I've always had kids do this project. And it really helps us focus in on, but but what is it that they're learning during this time? And it opens up folks to the conversation of, well, just because I've always had kids put together this 10 slide PowerPoint presentation, that doesn't mean that that they've learned what they need to and, and focusing in again on like, what is the the learning goal that we have? And it really is is freeing for us then to design and open up options for students when we're no longer, you know, kind of pigeonholed into one way of of either sharing information or having kids share what they know. So again, when we think about, you know, the difference between the end user of both, just beginning to think about what is it we're actually learning and, and where are we helping kids move to? That is freed when we think about learning design versus I need to plan for this one thing. Right. And it also changes sort of when and where the work of the teacher happens. So in traditional classrooms, so much of the teacher's job is spent on after the lesson in the mode of assessment. So we're we're using our rubrics to grade our papers. We're we're marking tests based on, you know, where we are in the learning journey. The assessment process typically takes more time on the teacher's behalf. In universal design for learning, we need to shift where the teacher spends their time to the design phase, which is meaning needing to shift the time spent to before the learning actually happens. And the reason they shift that time is because as you consider the goal and the number of options to meet the learner's needs, you essentially have to do more work in designing the materials that you need to make the material accessible and usable to all of your learners. So there's still a certain amount of lesson planning. So when you come up with three options, option one might need, you know, it might need a game board, it might need manipulatives, it might need a video explanation, it might need any number of things. And you still have to create that as the teacher in order to make sure the scaffolds is close to where the experience will happen. And that does require a lot of planning and potentially a lot of creating. But what it does is it frees you up while the learners are experiencing the learning to sit back and watch and coach and intervene where it's necessary. But typically when you do a lot of solid design work ahead of the lesson, learners tend to be more independent in their movement through the learning experience. So it's really just an adaptation of where teachers spend the majority of their time, grading and assessing or designing. And I think that's the nuance for me. And and I like that we're kind of moving in this direction in this episode about designing with empathy, right? So when we do have that opportunity to, you know, design. And we all know that educators do not have enough time to do the kind of design work that they would they would like. Mm-hmm. But when we do have the opportunity to to design, knowing that, you know, we have such great variability within our classrooms, 
we can design with empathy in order to provide those kinds of of options that will, like you had said, you know, give us the time when we have students in front of us to do those, you know, short conversations and to give the quick feedback to help them reflect on, you know, are you actually like using the right tools for you? Like helping them really become empowered themselves as learners because we've we've designed ways for them to think about, you know, who they are, you know, during the, the learning process. But, you know, I feel like there is that that shift, like you had said earlier, of, you know, it's the upfront planning and kind of thinking through who are the students within the classroom? What are some of the variability pieces that I'm I'm designing for? Which is different than differentiation. Like I think we could talk about UDL and differentiation as an entire podcast. But when we really think about, you know, the options that we provide that we just, you know, we know are going to be supportive for you know, our students. But the idea of designing with empathy, I think is, is really important versus lesson planning so that everybody has, you know, the same thing that they need to do. Right. Because often our lesson plans don't meet the needs of our learners and we may or may not recognize it because it's what we've always done and what we're expected to do. But the learner variability is a really important consideration. And You know, Mia, I think that learner variability is one of those UDL buzzword language things that those of us in the UDL space really understand. But when I talk about learner variability with my other teaching colleagues, I feel like they don't necessarily have an understanding of what that actually means. So let's dig into that a little bit. Let's try to define learner variability to the best of our ability. Do you want to start? Do you want to try? <laughs> or should I? I'm putting you on the <laughs> No, it's it's okay because like this has been a journey for me too. And I've been you know, really open as we've had these conversations about sharing my own like growth over the course of the time that we've worked together. And understanding learner variability is is what makes us as humans both interesting and challenging and why, you know, I think the art of teaching is so important because who we are as people, it changes day to day. When we bring together a group of of human beings, whether they are in a kindergarten classroom or AP Calc, or you are running, you know, professional learning for a staff, we all have different experiences. We all, you know, uh, like unpack information in different ways. We all need different ways in order to be able to process things. And the truth is what we need also changes day to day. You know, like I might need, you know, to you know give you a call, Missy, and be like, hey, I need to talk through this thing. Or I might need on a different day of time to just process on my own and think things through. So learner variability is more than just what color are you? Right. And I'm not even going to get into like some of those, you know, tests, personality tests that you can take, but it depends. And and again, like I think about, you know, the the opportunity I have in, in one of my districts where I follow a group of students through four different class periods and they go from ELA to science to math to social studies. And the variability within each student in every one of those class periods is so interesting to watch. You know, the student that works really well in math, in partner activities, when they are in science, 
they want to problem solve on their own. So learner variability, it's so much more than just, yes, what what color are you? And because it is so kind of like chaotic, I think, we can't plan for every student, but we can plan for those kinds of options that, you know, opens up learning and sharing, you know, to students in general, I think. Right. What do you think? How was, how was that for an explanation? I think you <laughs> kicked us off really well and you gave me a chance to sort of think about what I, how I would describe learner variability. And I think learner variability allows us the opportunity to sort of honor the lived experiences of students. It gives us an opportunity to honor their strengths and it also gives us an opportunity to honor their preferences and dislikes, right? So just like you said, I also think that the most important piece, like you said, is that it's not the same day to day or hour to hour. Things can come up like lived experience can happen in the afternoon after school before the next day. And suddenly lots of things about how you're going to approach your school day have changed based on what you experienced the night before. Even so much as, you know, maybe in third hour algebra, you took, you had a test and it was a cognitive overload for you and you had to work really hard for that. That can impact the way you go into social studies or science and approach your group work if your brain is tired. So I think that honoring the learner variability is really important. And the other piece is, when we think about learner variability, it allows us to, to think about the strengths and we can avoid deficit-based language and we can just accept right. a, a learner's lived experience and strengths and differences as a learner as an asset, not necessarily as something that needs to be fixed because we don't need to fix kids. They're not broken. We just need to adjust our learning designed so that they can bring their best self to every experience. So that it makes me think of a class period during the pandemic. So we had Schmiel school, that's what we called it in my kitchen <laughs> when, when we had lockdown. And I had my, my two children. Um, and at the time they were sixth grade and eighth grade. Uh, they were working on math and I was trying to like work my own job. And my youngest was constantly talking and he would like talk through the math he was on. And my oldest son and I were like, could you please just stop talking? We're trying to concentrate here. And he's like, what what do you mean I'm talking? I, I don't, I'm what? And we're like, Parker, just stop talking during math right now. And he's like, what? But that's what I need to do. And I had this like moment, like this epiphany of like, I just pigeonholed my two children into one environment where they needed to be quiet. There is no talking for math, even if that's what you needed. And it, I had this, this moment of like, I wonder what happens when Parker is in a physical math classroom. And we, you know, obviously we like came out of the lockdown and he's been really good about in math saying, I need to go out in the hallway and just talk this out. Because he could unintentionally look like that talkative kid who doesn't want to do math. When in reality, that's, that's how he thinks. And he had to talk through math in that way. So when we think about, you know, designing for learner variability, there's also that space of 
kids being able to figure out then what is it they need to learn and as they go through, you know, the, the learning process. And it was just, it was so interesting for me in, in that moment to look at my two children who had grew up in the same house, who needed very different things in order to process math. I will never, ever, ever forget that. And, you know, he now continues to go through math and, you know, advocate for, for what he needs. Yeah. And I think that that's the key in learning design is learning designs inherent in any design are barriers. And so as you design and you remove the barrier for one child, you may inadvertently insert a barrier for another child, which is why having options and choices that are all related to the goal. Remember, options and choices are not a free for all. All of the options and choices must come back to the goal. But in having lots of them, it is allowing for the teacher or the learning designer to remove as many barriers as possible and for learners to engage in the learning in the way that suits them best. And it will become more and more effective as long as we go back to that assessment piece and we're assessing the choices they're making with them and not just, you know, never giving them the opportunity to evaluate if the choice they made was a good one for them as learners, or if it was just a good one because they wanted to hang out with their friend or something, right? So I really think that that, that's twofold. You have to give the learners an opportunity to assess if the choices and the options that they made were a good choice for them or if they weren't. And when they do that, that's when they're more able to advocate for themselves going forward. And that option and opportunity to reflect on the choices they made is part of the learning design. Absolutely. And I also think about the like the flip side of that story. So my oldest son, he cannot problem solve and talk things through in a small group. That is just not how he functions. He, he needs time to, to process first on his own and think things through and then be able to, you know, commit to sharing ideas in a small group. So when we think about, well, I'm, I'm going to have all the kids share out or I'm going to have them do a turn and talk, that can unintentionally, right, bring about a barrier to learning and being able to balance, like for those kids that do need to, you know, maybe process verbally, how do we still provide that option for the the kids that I need some time just to think first and then I'll be able to share? Because then we also look at, you know, within our classrooms, like, well, that one never talks. And the reality is, well, we haven't given them time to like process the question first mm-hmm. and help them think through. So again, being able to think about when we have those design options, like what really does work best for me as a learner and being able to make that choice you know, as, as we move forward. Absolutely. And helping the learners as they assess what worked for them or didn't work for them, always tying that back to the ultimate goal of UDL, which is becoming an expert learner. And in evaluating the choices that they made for their learning journey, that does support them in becoming an expert learner. Yeah. So, so far we've talked about designing with empathy, the nuance between learning design and lesson planning, which led us into talking about learner variability. So I'd like to start talking about cognitive load in an example that I have from my special education classroom experience. So I 
came into teaching special education after teaching high school English for eight years. And then I ended up uh, moving into special education and it was finals of the first semester of my first year in special education. And I taught in a pretty inclusive environment for the most part. And the English teacher brought the English test, the English final down to me. And she was so ecstatic because her English final was only, only took two pieces of paper to print for each student. And so it was four pages, you know, so you know, front and back on two sheets of paper. And she was ecstatic because, you know, she didn't want to kill any more trees. And I looked at the test and I thought, oh my goodness. The font was size 10. There was no white space. There was no white space between the questions. She had shrunk the margins to be like 0.25 all the way around. So like literally this, this four page document had zero white space. The font was really close together and very tiny. And all I could think of was, oh my goodness, this is going, just the sight of this test is going to overwhelm my students. Whether they know the content on within the questions or not. They they are going to be overwhelmed. So the thing that I did, probably not knowing that I was doing it to reduce cognitive load, although that's ultimately what it did, was I retyped the test in regular size 12 font and I made sure the margins were still 0.75 or 1, whatever the typical margins are. I did not adjust them. And I added an extra space between number one and number two. And I bolded words that I knew would be supportive in them, you know, understanding the question. And when it was all done, the test did end up being six pages. And that potentially is overwhelming. But when it was all on like a front and a back and a front and a back, it was really heavy. And I remember taking the tests back to the teacher and another student who was not in my programming said, oh my gosh, that test looks so much easier to read. (laughs) And I thought it absolutely is. And so that actually, that experience actually triggered a conversation with us as a staff to, to really think about how the content looks on a page, especially in an assessment. So that was my first experience with cognitive, being really aware of the cognitive load and the impact that that could have. And so that's essentially how I went about fixing it, uh, fixing the environment. I changed the paper. So that's my example of cognitive load overwhelm. How about you, Mia? Do you have an example of where cognitive load comes into play? I I go back to um, the work I'm doing in, in one of our districts and my buddy, Jake, you know, we had a chance to look at an assessment that he was designing for, you know, the, the end of a unit. And one of the barriers that that he came up with, and as we kind of talked through his design, was they don't know where to find the stuff. Like he builds these like really amazing kind of like self-paced like investigations for his social studies class. And like the students couldn't figure out like where to go back 
to actually find the evidence for what they were going to use in, you know, their, their final, it wasn't an essay, but like being able to wrap up like the unit at that time and being able to think about like the organization of the materials for some students like that was, they were able to navigate and figure it out. And that wasn't adding to any cognitive load for others, trying to sift through and figure out like, where was the document? Where was the infographic? Like, where were the things that I was able to actually find information? I can't find them now. And just thinking through his digital space, his digital classroom was an area that, you know, he, he took on because he would find different kinds of materials and resources that he thought would be really helpful for students but then unintentionally kind of buried all of those great materials and, and didn't have an organization that worked for, for his students. So thinking through again, like if the end product is designed in a way that give kids multiple ways of showing what they know, but being able to organize those materials in a way that kids can still like figure out what they need, if, if that's not done, if that scaffold isn't there, if we're not thinking through you know, the organization of our tools, we unintentionally design a barrier. Even though like he wanted to give kids as many different options to like find material as he could. And that was just a really great moment for him to think about this is great material, but now how do I help, you know, structure it in a way that's easy for kids to access. And that design feature was something that he worked through. And I was so proud of him um, when we met up and he's like, oh, check this out. Here's what my, my classroom looks like now. And um, he just made some really great changes that were helpful for kids and got kids feedback as he went through that process. Because like the end user, it wasn't for him. He could find the stuff. The end user really was like every one of his students in his classroom. Yes, that goes back to what Jane Bischoff, uh, the department, uh, the DPI head UDL person always says, access without use equals no benefit. So when all of those amazing things were in his classroom, they were not being used though because again, they were buried. So then there was no benefit of having that additional information. And also thinking about options and choices as they relate to the goal, it's never just options and choices. But right. when we think about putting those in place, sometimes options and choices are actually the barrier for learners if they can't make a decision. So when you think about adding in options and choices, you also have to build in a support that will help learners make those choices so that they can move forward in their learning. And if they aren't able to make that choice, just recognize that they are stuck right where they are in cognitive overload because they can't make that decision. And so I think that's really important to understand that options and choices are an amazing feature of UDL design. But if we don't help learners make decisions, it is nothing more than a barrier. And Jake was like really good at finding different materials, right? And really living what we talk about with multiple means of representation, right? He looked for video clips. He looked for primary source documents. Like he had so many great materials and students were able to, you know, figure out different materials that at the end of the day worked for them. And that was really great growth for Jake as an educator, because he, he would provide these options for students and, you know, really give them like the buffet of research. But at the end of the day, it was helping kids 
stop and think about, do videos really work for me? Like, am I getting the right content? Am I understanding where our guiding questions are taking us in watching the videos? And we worked through several coaching cycles and just that reflection process on the design for students, which in turn helped Jake design his upcoming work in a different way. So again, like when we think about, you know, the options for students in accessing information, thinking about even how, you know, students can share what they know, that if we give them too many options and we never help them stop and think about, did it actually work for me? Or I watched the video because I thought that would be a lot easier, but it, I didn't get anything from it. So the whole design process and thinking about options and designing with empathy we need to include that, uh, that thought and that time for reflection and helping students really understand what is the best option for them, you know, when they're learning something, something new. Absolutely. So Mia, we've covered a lot of ground today in regards to designing learning experiences. And when we come back again in our next episode, we're going to continue the conversation about designing learning experiences, but we're going to specifically talk about designing environments, digital environments, classroom environments, school environments in ways that will reduce barriers, reduce cognitive load and support learners in their quest to learn whatever it is that meets their goal in that particular moment. But the design piece, designing with empathy and really getting into the end user of the design being the students, it is a conversation that 30 minutes is not enough for. So (laughs) we'll continue. (laughs) Absolutely not. And actually it's at the heart of so much of what universal design for learning is, right? right? Design is a key element of it as well as learning. But we don't have enough time to fill in all the blanks today. So we are going to continue this conversation next time. So be sure to stay uh, tuned for the next episode. And Mia, do you have any other closing thoughts to bring it all together? I'm just looking forward to comments and hearing some reactions to how people are thinking about design versus planning and just the impact of that small tweak in language, when you begin to think about design and planning um, as two different things, it changes your world. Absolutely. So don't forget to leave us a comment in the UDL Forward community. Just go to udlforward.community and we'll chat with you next time. That's a wrap for this episode of UDL Forward. We hope you found our discussion insightful and inspiring. Making education accessible and engaging for all students is really important work. Before we go, we want to remind you to please subscribe to UDL Forward on your favorite podcast platform and tell a friend to listen to. And don't forget to join our always on, always available online community at udlforward.community. In the community, you can connect with like-minded educators and share your thoughts, experiences, and questions related to UDL. We'd love to see you there and continue this important conversation. Until next time, keep pushing those boundaries of education and moving UDL forward.